0: Right. If you'll tell the person you're talking to, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. 1 Thessalonians four thirteen, I think they'll get the hint. Hey, I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. And I hope you took a little time to say thank you to the Lord for all of his goodness for us, every blessing that he's given us. Um, I was talking at the 242 group we went to about how uh, for a lot of Americans, Thanksgiving is kind of just a nebulous thing. Like they, it's uh, we're supposed to be thankful, but to whom? I think sometimes the secular mind they think I should say thanks maybe to the universe or somebody, but I don't know who. But we as Christians are under no illusion about who we should thank. Right? We know who we should thank. It's it's the Lord. All right, 1 Thessalonians 4 on our future hope as Christians. Um, When I was four years old, my grandma on my mom's side uh, unexpectedly died in her sleep. And we went to the funeral home uh, for the viewing, and my mom was holding me as we looked down in the casket at her mom lying there. And I remember thinking, Grandma looks like she's sleeping and uh, that was the first person I ever saw who had died. And it occurred to me that there was a peaceful, restfulness to it all. And I was too young to remember this, but my mom told me later that she spent days lying on the couch crying after her mom passed away, And until one day the pastor came by, and I think he may have done all of this right from the porch. He knocked on the door, and um, she opened it up, and he said... Um, something really simple and sweet to her. Maxine, she's with Jesus. And, you know, she said that it something changed. It wasn't anything that she didn't know already. It was just that gentle reminder and that comfort that comes from right perspective. And whatever the exact words were, it was what she needed to hear. And, you know, she still grieved. But my mom was comforted by those words because my grandma was trusting in Jesus as her Savior. Does that resonate with anybody today? That There is a there is a hope in that. All I have for you this morning is a little encouragement about eternal life. Um, and what Christ offers us is real hope. Listen, I don't think that what Paul is writing in First Thessalonians is the whole uh, end time chart. In fact, I'm not preaching on end time chart today I'm preaching from the text and so what we want to do is we want to ask what is what does God have to say about all of this and there's some encouragement and um, in Christ there's real hope beyond the grave amen there's real hope beyond the grave and what you get from our culture is sappy sentimentalism or hardline hopelessness one of those two the sentimental sounds a lot like the stuff of greeting cards. It's heaven for everyone, and it's going to be great. And everything is shiny brass and winged angels, but there's no substance to it. Okay, you know, it's a lot of the stuff sometimes you hear um, at funeral services or from greeting cards, but there's not substance to it. And I want to suggest to you that we have substance in the Christian message. The hardliners will tell you that you shouldn't put your hope in fairy tales. You shouldn't uh, bank on those kinds of things. They'll claim the cold, hard facts, and what uh, awaits us is cold, black nothingness after we die. That's encouraging. And this line, I want to tell you, is nothing new. There was a common inscription that went on graves during the first and maybe back to the third century, uh, and it started with Epicurean's. And uh, this was, it was written sometimes in Greek and sometimes in Latin. And this is what it said. This was the inscription that people put on their tombs. Not many people, not everybody. I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Can you imagine going to the grave of your relative and seeing that inscribed on their tombstone? That's bleak. And it was so common that some people reduced it to initials like R.I.P. I don't know if you knew this, but R.I.P. means rest in peace. Right? Everybody know that? R.I.P. rest in peace. And so they had something like that uh, with regards to that saying, I I was not, I was, uh, I am not, I don't care. The gospel message isn't intimidated by the hardline hopelessness, and it's not empty like the sentimentalism those things were around when Jesus rose from the dead and so the world that the gospel came into that the apostles first proclaimed the resurrection to was a world that already had hardline hopelessness and sappy sentimentalism just like ours and so it's not it's not new that when christianity came onto the scene it changed the dynamic of the landscape because it offered real hope and it still does to us today The resurrection of the body, that's the central claim of the Christian message. Most of culture thought that would be false. In fact, oftentimes when Paul preached, they wanted to hear him. And you think about Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, that they all wanted to hear him. And the Bible says of them that they all loved to listen to nothing but the latest ideas. And Paul came preaching the gospel, and they loved it until he got to the resurrection, and then they laughed at him. Because to the Greek mind, that was scandalous. They thought, Why would you want to come back to a body when you've been liberated from it? And so that was a point of contention, but some believed, and when they believed, there was real hope, and that's what the gospel offers, is real hope beyond the grave to everyone who's united with Christ, because his life is your life, and his resurrection will produce your resurrection. Let's read our text here in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 13, and following through verse 18. Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you'll not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and he rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will, not, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will so we will ever or we will be with the Lord forever. I have the King James imprinted on my mind there. Verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. My, my pastor came to our front porch and said to my mom, Maxine, she's with Jesus. That's comforting with these words. We need to know that there's comfort, a comfort in hope. Look at verse 13 again, and you can see here Paul saying to the Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, okay, so that you'll not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So there's a reason for the writing of this passage We sometimes want to glom on all these other reasons and other texts. And and if we listen closely, we can hear why Paul is writing this. He's not trying to establish an end-time chart. What he's trying to do is bring comfort to Christians who don't have an understanding of what happens to believers after they die. And so he offers this text to them. And what I suspect happened is that we know already that Timothy has returned Paul and uh, his companions, I think um, Silas and Timothy, they had been preaching and they came through uh, Thessalonica and they were forced out and they had to leave in a rush because of persecution and for the safety of the church. And they went on to Berea and from Berea they went to Athens and from Athens uh, later to Corinth. But Paul sent Timothy back to check on the Thessalonian church to find out how they're doing and so maybe Uh, a period of nine months has passed, maybe not even that long since they were there preaching the gospel, winning some of this church for the first time to the Lord. And since that time, it seems to me that someone has passed away in the church. And so there's grieving about that. I thought that Jesus was coming back. I thought Jesus would come back before that would happen. Now it doesn't resonate with us because lots of people who've been Christians have passed away since Jesus was raised and he hasn't yet come back. And so this doesn't seem to be a problem for us, but perhaps it was for them. And so Timothy comes back to Paul and he says that there are people that are uh, there that are really grieving and, and it seems the w- way that they're grieving is more in line with their old Gentile hopelessness and not like their Christian hopefulness. Do you understand that we, we as Christians should grieve differently for those who've passed away in Christ than the world grieves? I've done a lot of funerals at this point, And what I've seen is a marked difference between those who are believers and those who are not. You can feel it. It's palpable. There is a, and uh, there's a weight of hopelessness when somebody has not been trusting the Lord and you have to say nice things, or you have to say some things. I, I tell you, I don't preach somebody into heaven that I don't believe is there. And so sometimes you have to just share hope. You can't tell about the person. Maybe you don't know the person. Maybe you know that they weren't serving the Lord. And so there's hope in the message of the gospel, but there's a hopelessness in hearts that needs to be touched. But I'm telling you, it's different. When you when you go to the funeral of somebody who's trusted in the Lord or the memorial service, there is, there is a hope that is palpable. And it, it causes us to be buoyant in our grieving. And I think maybe what Timothy may have seen was, Something is different here that these believers, it hasn't yet sunk in what hope we have in Jesus. Someone has passed away, but they're grieving like the old ways of grieving when they didn't know there was a resurrection. And it seems to me that may be the scenario. We, We can only guess at it, but Timothy comes back and reports to Paul. And Paul responds to this with, I don't want you to be uninformed about these things. The Thessalonians um, is thought to be among the earliest of the New Testament writings. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Galatians, James, and First Thessalonians are thought to be the first of the New Testament writings. Now, that might trouble you a little bit because you thought, what about the Gospels? They happen first. The events of the Gospels happen first. The recording of the Gospels happen later. Okay, so the events of the Gospel have happened, and there are... Uh, apostles that are preaching the words of Jesus and the story of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus. Not not in that order, obviously. But they're doing that. But as far as what's being written down, 1 Thessalonians, one of the first letters. And so what you have to keep in mind is that as Paul shares here, he's not sharing every detail about all of these things. We don't yet have, maybe for another 40 to 45 years, we don't have the book of Revelation. These believers... What they have is the preaching of Paul and now this letter to tell them what happens to somebody when they've passed on. We don't have First Corinthians 15 yet. I mean, you've got the preaching of that, but you don't have all of that in place yet. We don't have some of the other things. You do have some of the Old Testament stuff that refers to the end of times. But Paul's expressed purpose here is to bring hope into a situation. He's consoling them or comforting them, With hope, and so this is the first category here that we see is the comfort that comes from hope. We uh, we have Paul saying, "For this reason, I've written to you." Look at verse thirteen with me again. You can see there um, he's writing because he doesn't want them to be uninformed about dying in Christ. The second reason is right in that same um, statement: is so that this is the further purpose that they wouldn't grieve like the rest of mankind without hope. He wants to bring them comfort so they don't, so that we don't grieve as Christians, as people without hope. He tells us the reason for that. And then verse 18, at the very end of this section of the passage, it's really a longer passage, but we're dealing with 13 through 18 today, so that you could comfort one another, so that you could do like our pastor did when he came to the door and said, in the gentlest way, It was the right word to say at the right moment, Maxine, she's with Jesus. Okay? We need to comfort one another with words like that. And you understand that what needs to be said at any particular moment may depend upon the circumstance. Everybody understand that? You can't come with these sort of flat statements and say just the same thing every time and it ministers in exactly the same way. You have to be sensitive to the situation. But we also need to know that we have an opportunity as believers to offer hope. I said, um, I said, uh, I think last week, that uh, I believe in the prophethood of all believers. Now, you might think, man, you've gone off your rocker. That's a weird thing to say. Well, I don't mean that everybody is a prophet in the office sense. Like, you know that everybody is called to evangelize? Everybody know that? Yes? No? Let's stop this sermon and talk about evangelism. We're called to evangelize, and uh, yet, not everybody is an evangelist. Proper, okay? You understand that? So I think that that in a similar way, we're called to prophesy, which is not to foretell the future. It's to speak on God's behalf, okay? You understand that not everybody is a prophet, but everybody can prophesy and speak for God. One of the goals of prophecy, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, is to bring comfort. Did you know that? It's to bring God's word to bear upon a situation that needs comfort, and so when God calls upon you to reach out to somebody and bring comfort, comfort one another with these words, that's part of a prophetic working is to share that kind of comfort. And I can't spend a lot more time on that today because there's so much more here. But, but I do want you to know that when you bring comfort to a situation, that's the touch of God. Okay, that's, we need to do that. And I don't mean sometimes we need people to be uncomfortable. Do you understand that there's a time to say the word that caused people to be a little bit uncomfortable? But there are times where the healing hand or the healing work of Christ needs to come into a situation. If we're the instrument for that, we're acting in a way that Jesus would have us to act. He comes and he brings comfort to situations like this. And so the reason for writing is so that they wouldn't be uninformed, so that they wouldn't grieve as those without hope and so that they would not they, they would comfort one another. In verse 13, he talks about this not grieving portion. You have to read this very carefully, because it doesn't say that Christians do not grieve, period. Come on, with me? He doesn't say that we don't grieve. He says we don't grieve as those who grieve without hope. So it's different. It's not saying here that we should live with this. Uh, plastic triumphalism where we plaster a smile across our face when we're going through something difficult. No. I think that's fake. I don't want to be a church like that. If you're going through something, let people know about it. Not in a whiny, complaining kind of way. You know what I mean? Like some some people make an identity out of their suffering. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, hey, you know what? I could use some prayer. It's been a hard time. It's been a hard season. And uh, I would Would you pray with me about it? And that kind of thing, I think, invites people to come in and to join with you in your difficulty. And you can share and you can grieve and work through it. Okay, so it's not plastic. It's not fake. It's not this triumphalism that says, I never have a bad day. It's not that. This is the kind of thing that says, look, we can grieve, but let's keep perspective in our grief. Okay? The perspective is that we have a resurrection that we're looking forward to. And those who've died in Christ are going to be raised. Amen. Well, I think it's good news. And so when he talks about grieving here, we have to listen very carefully to what he says. It's not don't grieve, but don't sorrow as those without hope. In verse 13, he calls out all the other religions and philosophies of the world. I don't know if you notice this, but look at verse 13. Once again, it says, so that we don't grieve like the rest of mankind without hope. Who's he talking about? Anyone who's not trusting in Christ. Now, they might have a temporary hope, like, you know, I got a shot to make a professional baseball team or whatever. That might be a great hope, or you got an opportunity to make a great life for yourself in one area. But what about after all that? What about when all that's said and done, when all the glory days are past? And now you only have you stand at the precipice of eternity, and you only have to look into the chasm. What hope do you have then? Okay, understand. In that moment, a Christian has hope. A Christian can carry hope through all of their days because of Jesus. Come on, this is good preaching this morning. We need to hear it every day. We can have hope even when we're going through grief. We can do it with as, as one without hope. But he's saying all the other philosophies, all the other religions, they don't offer the hope that's found in Jesus. He's calling them out. When he says grieve here, well, he's talking about a particular kind of grief. This is uh, continuing, ongoing sorrow. And the verb refers primarily to inward grief. It's not talking about necessarily the crying, but, but carrying the grief with us in a particular way where it affects all that we do and all that we are, and so what Paul is not doing is counseling us to stoicism or indifference, but to view Christian death in light of the resurrection. Remember Jesus wept at the grave of lazarus i don 't know if you know this, but when it says it talks about his demeanor there it 's like he snorted in anger. Did you know that so he was angry at the death of Lazarus and he sat in tears fell from his eyes and yet he was knew he was going to raise him from the dead not only did he know that but jesus knew because one of the sisters said yes he'll be raised at the last day of course but jesus said no i'm the resurrection and the life if anyone believes in me though he die he will he will live right and so this is the hope that we find in jesus so he can say death is he can scoff at it okay But at the same time, he can weep over it because of the pain that it causes to hearts and lives. And how this was never really God's will. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think the judgment of death God put upon people. Do you know that? The Garden of Eden, it was so that we wouldn't live on continually in our perpetual sinful state. But do you think that was God's original purpose? There's a functional purpose, and there's an original purpose. And his original purpose is that we live on through eternity with him. That's his eternal purpose. And so death is the interruption of all of that. And uh, he grieves about it himself, and yet he has all the knowledge of the hope that there is for resurrection. Let me talk to you for a couple minutes about the content of hope. There's comfort in hope. There's content to hope, and this is really important to understand is that a lot of the hope that's out there is more wishful thinking. It's not based upon true content. And Christian hope is different than that. Christian hope has solid ground okay, to stand on. Paul says in verse 13 that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. And so what he's saying here is if I tell you something, then your hope will flourish. Do you see that? If I tell you something, if I give you some kind of information, it's going to change things. It's going to change how you respond to the death of somebody who loved Jesus. It's going to change how you feel about that. Uh, It may not take away your longing for them or missing them or you feel like something's absent in your life, but what it will do is it will change this sense of that's a forever thing. Okay, you understand? It changes. And so Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed. There's content. Five times in Paul we hear him say, I don't want you to be Uninformed, or if, they, if you have the King James that says, uh, I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. He wants us to know some things, and so he always says that when something's important and when it has, um, I think in almost every case, it has some kind of practical application that goes with it, like spiritual gifts, like I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. Here's what you need to know, and here's what you should do about it. Here's what you need to know about these things, and here's what you need to do about it. And so Paul, he says that when there's something important that needs to be understood, um, it will usually affect behavior. And uninformed may be a reason that some people lack hope, because hope requires knowledge. Otherwise, it is just wishful thinking. Paul is writing to inspire hope through knowledge. And so the answer that he thinks is to teach them what will happen or is happening with those who die. In the Gentile world of Paul's day, some did believe in the immortality of the soul, like the the Epicurean statement. They had another motto, by the way, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, right? Uh, There's nothing on the other side, so let's enjoy everything on this side, okay? And that's not a Christian motto. Okay, so just to be clear, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die is not a Christian. It's not a Christian motto, and neither is the other one. You will, it does matter what happens to us that we were here and how we lived our lives. And so, but some believed in immortality of the soul, but others denied it. And even those who believed in it, uh, the afterlife, it was this vague, shadowy thing built on myth. A lot of them got it from Homer. Um, they believed that maybe there was some kind of shadowy existence in the in the afterworld. And the, a lot of the, the ghost stories, you find uh, origins in Homer. And uh, so there was a lot of that that went around. Even those who believed, it was just a vague thing. And there was no concrete reason to believe anything about the afterlife. How different is it to believe in Christ? We believe, in verse 14, notice verse 14 here, we believe, for we believe, this is, a, this is connected to what's previously said. We want you to have hope so that you don't grieve as those without hope. For we believe, something is going to change all of that. And here's the beginning of this. For we believe that uh, Jesus died and he rose again. Okay, We believe that. Jesus died and rose again. Somebody has already come and lived and died and rose in some way. And so he's saying there's hope, and it's it starts here, is that we believe Jesus died and rose again. The Gospels and the Apostles' Creed are very sure about this, that this happened as a matter of history. Folks, we sometimes treat Christianity like it's just a useful fiction. And it's, it is it is useful, but it's not a fiction. Do you understand that what I'm saying? There's a difference here. The Apostles' Creed says... He suffered under Pontius Pilate, okay? And that tells us something about the fact of Jesus' death is that it happened between 26 and 36 A.D. We know that because that's when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. And so what the Apostles' Creed is doing is placing the death and resurrection of Christ in history. And it gets even more specific than that, that most people believe that uh, Jesus died. This is what the scholars believe at a particular time around A.D. 30. I'll talk more about that in a second. But do you know that there were other religions, um, several years ago now, Bill Maher put out uh, some kind of pseudo-documentary called, I think, Irreligious, or does anybody re- recognize that or remember something like that? And one of the things that he said that was supposed to be super profound and caused everybody to jump away from their Christianity was that there were other religions that believed in death and resurrection, and so he brought up the, like the corn king and the Sibylline cult. And, um, and one of the other ones is the uh, Dionysus, the, the god of the vine who every year dies and then resurrects and brings the grapes back. And then everybody has the festival of Dionysus and they go absolutely berserk. And uh, as if we haven't known about that for 2,000 years. C.S. Lewis even talks about it in one of his books. He says there are other myths that talk about this. But this is the one myth, and be careful how you understand myth, that happens to be true. This is the one story that happens to be true. And he believes, C.S. Lewis believed, all those other things were precursors that were like echoes through history to help other people come to see the true story. So the fact that they believed in myths like that was supposed to be some way of helping to shove people in the right direction when they saw the true deal, that Jesus really did die and rise from the dead. So those were stories of death and resurrection, but Christ's resurrection places the reality within history. Okay, so Thomas Oden in his um, book, Systematic Theology, he says there's a good reason to believe that the crucifixion took place on the 14th of Nisan in the year that he died, and because many people believe it was A.D. 30, don't be troubled by the fact that uh, we think Jesus died when he was 33. That We don't know that for a fact. I don't know if you know that. It says he started his ministry around 30. Around 30? There's some flexibility. How many of you are still around 30? Okay, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> he could have been as old as 37, but he was near 30 when he died on the cross. Somewhere near there, and it could be on the upper end of that, but um, they think that he died on AD eighty thirty. And we know if it's the 14th of Nisan, April 7th. Isn't that amazing to think about? And he rose again on the 9th. Now, we don't need to make a date of that because we already do it. We base it on the Jewish calendar. We celebrate a different date every year. The exact date is not the important thing Odin goes on to say. What's important is that the saving sacrificial action occurred in history on a particular day, not abstractly or symbolically in some mythical non-historical realm. This event is datable within reasonable accuracy. So, we know Jesus died. We know he rose again. It's a fact of history. And uh, though we'd like to know more about the resurrection, we are miles ahead of that hopeless speculation of the world's religions. We have a Savior who died and rose again as a fact of history, and that changes everything. Changes everything. Okay, not only that, but we believe in the promises of the Bible. So when we're talking about the content of hope, the first thing he says in verse 14 here is, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Somehow that is supposed to spark hope within these Thessalonian believers and you and me, that Jesus died and rose again, that there is life after death. Is it for us or is it just for him? What did Jesus say about that? I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, though you die, you'll live That he is the life, and in connection with Jesus, we have eternal life. Apart from him, we have no life. But connected to him, we have life. And folks, let me say something else. It's not about you coming and kneeling at an altar and having an experience somewhere in your past. It's about a living connection with the living Savior. You live because you're in connection with the living Savior. He is your life. If we're disconnected from the Savior, every branch that doesn't remain in me is cut off and thrown into the fire. We have to stay connected to the life source. So as we are connected to the life source, there is life. And he tells us here, this is a, what's known as a first-class conditional statement, meaning that the first line of the statement is considered true. And if that's considered true, then the next line is true. Okay. So here's the first line of the statement. We believe that Jesus died and he rose again. So, the rest of verse 14 we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Hope. The hope is that those who have, have died in Christ are with Jesus, and when Jesus returns, he'll bring them with him. Okay, So now we're talking about believing in the promises of God's word. So, um, as I said, if this first statement's true, the second part follows. And the same belief that comes from Jesus Rising from the dead is the same belief that produces hope that Christ will fulfill these promises as well. The future hope and the present comfort is built upon the past. Did you know that? Okay. Look at how this works. We have future hope that Jesus will raise the dead. Why? Because in the past, he was raised from the dead. And not only that, but in, he was raised from the dead in a particular way in a glorified body. Do you remember He all that business about don't touch me and Him moving through, it seems, closed rooms and all of that, and yet being able to sit down and eat. Anybody come to the end of one of the Gospels and it says, and Jesus asked them, you guys have anything to eat? And he sat down and eat. and you go, well, what's that about? You need to know that this is not a spirit or a ghost in the room. This is a raised corporal body. Okay. And so when we talk about life after death, a lot of times in our imagination, we're thinking we're going to die and go to heaven and we're going to be spirits floating around up there. No, that's not the end That's not the end of it all. The end of it all is that there is a resurrection of a body. Folks, I don't know if you've thought about that, but, you know, all of that seems ethereal and nebulous, but when we're talking about something tangible, something that we can touch, we will have a raised body, okay? And we need to know that because there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, and it will be a tangible in some way, Remember, Jesus um, was raised to life, and then it says in, I think, 1 John, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. You You know what that translates to? That what Jesus is like in his body is what we will be like in our glorified bodies. And we don't know it all yet. And John won't tell us it all, and I'm not sure that he knew it all. And God allows this knowledge and mystery to exist side by side as we move forward in hope. And he does that with us. We need to trust him in those areas that he hasn't yet revealed. So I think even Christians sometimes forget that Christianity is a fact-based faith. It doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but, but what we need to know. Okay, look at verse 13 again about those. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. And then verse 14, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. And then I believe in verse 15, we will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Okay, so it's using this picture, this euphemism. It's a nice way of saying something about death. Do you remember when Jesus has not yet gone to Lazarus's tomb? They hear about Lazarus, he's fallen sick, and it says that he waits a couple days, right? And then he goes, and his disciples ask him, if what's going on with Lazarus? He says, well, Lazarus is sick. And then they find out that he's died, and Jesus tells his disciples, Lazarus is asleep. Remember? Well, Lord, if he's asleep, let's go wake him up. <laughs> they didn't know how right they were, but they were a little bit wrong because he plainly says to them, no, Lazarus is dead. He's using the common ancient euphemism for death. That somebody when they die, it looks like they've gone to sleep, and so this is a way of talking about death. And I imagine, especially in a world where there was such a bleak hope for afterwards, that they had to use euphemism just to get through the day. Okay, but n- but not Jesus. Certainly, he knows more about this. Um, Those who sleep in death was a common way of describing death in pleasant language, and probably. It seems to me just for the body, there's disagreement about this um, among believers. Some believe that when you die, you enter in kind of a soul sleep until the resurrection of the body. And and, uh, we shouldn't be divisive about that, okay? At the end of the day, it won't matter. But it seems to me there's good reason to believe that your soul continues on in consciousness, okay? And here's the reason why I believe that. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember that one goes... Uh, to Hades, the other goes to Abraham's bosom. The one who's in Hades is crying out for just a touch of water to be brought to his tongue. He's conscious of that moment. It's probably a parable, but it gives us a little bit of insight. And then the thief on the cross to him, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Acts chapter 7 verse 55 through 60 Stephen, as he's dying, looks up into heaven and sees the Lord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 through 10, Paul says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 24, to depart uh, is to be with Christ, which is far better. And then Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11 has the souls of the dead crying out how long, O Lord. And so it seems to me there's good reason to believe that we exist in a conscious state with the Lord when we die. But if not, okay, I'm just saying just in case, you ought to know that God knows those who are his, and there is a resurrection of the body, okay, there's a resurrection of the body, whether we go be with him in a conscious state, or whether we sleep, okay, and I I believe that we are in a conscious state between now and then, but how could I know, other than what I've seen in scripture here, but it's worth thinking about uh, also that Jesus never uses Sleep for his own death. Have you ever noticed that? Instead, he and the other New Testament writers emphasize the full weight of death on him, and it's easy to guess why that would be. Because uh, Jesus may lighten what that load is for others, but Christ bears the full weight of it. Right? Even when they offered him a sedative or some kind of uh, anesthesia, remember they offered him the sponge with, that had the, the wine and gall? That would have been some kind of way of appeasing the pain, but he refused it. Okay, so the full weight of death came down upon him so that the shadow could pass over us. Thank the Lord. Amen. Verse 14 talks about those who've fallen asleep through Jesus. We're just kind of moving through this, and this is just referring to believers that even as we pass on, we're dying in Christ. We're dying in Christ. We're not separated from him in death. Even dying in Jesus is compared to sleep. And God the Father is seen as the active agent of resurrection. You can see that as you um, see in verse um, 14. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus, God the Father will bring with Jesus those who fall asleep in him. You can see uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the resurrection as well in other places The emphasis is not on, um, is on the fact, not on the how all of this takes place. Verse verse 15, look at verse 15 with me. It says, now according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive and are left at the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep, will not precede those who've fallen asleep, at the Lord's own word. Now Paul is, is saying Christ has been raised from the dead. But we have in addition to that, and this is purely by confirmation, we have God's own or the Lord's own word to tell us that we will we will be raised with him. We will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. So Paul is saying, if we're still alive at the coming of the Lord, we need to understand that people who've died, they'll be with Jesus already when he comes. Come on, isn't that exciting news? He'll be with Jesus, and that's comforting. They'll be with Jesus when he comes. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel. Let me talk about that in just a moment. According to the Lord's own word, is this um, Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 through 31? Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of the heavens to the other. Let me talk about something real quick here that I think is important that we know is sometimes in Scripture when an event is described, it's described in a way that it talks about it in its entirety without separating out the parts. so you may have a pretty detailed end time chart. I know what mine is, and I know I've studied the other ones, and there's good and convincing reasons for every one of them, okay? No no fool has come up with an end-time chart. Everybody's factored it in, so I want to encourage you. Let's be kind when it comes to these things. These don't have to be divisive and send us away. We know for a fact Jesus is coming back. We all agree on that. Amen? He's coming back. And the when and the where um, and the how, I mean, we can see some of that here, but uh, let me give you an example. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about an event, but there's lots of parts to it. Do you agree? Like you have the birth of Christ. We have his uh, preparation years, which he's not actively in public ministry. Then you have his public ministry, and then you have uh, his death and his resurrection and so on. Okay, And you could argue that he continues in the state of incarnation because he has a body like ours. Okay, Well, a resurrected body. But what we mean when we talk about the incarnation is Jesus coming in the flesh, okay? That's an event, and yet if we zoom in, we can see some separate parts to it. I think there are times when the uh, writers of the Bible, they talking about an uh, event, and one of the key ones in the Bible is the day of the Lord, okay? The day of the Lord is like shorthand for the end of days, okay? And it can sometimes mean like this vast expanse. There could be this event and this event and this event that happens, but it's kind of a, a punctilier way or a, a an abbreviated way of saying, this all will happen, here's the event. Does, does that make sense? Okay, if not, uh, talk to me later. But but what I'm saying is that oftentimes with this, Paul here is not um, getting bogged down with details about, I mean, we have no mention of the millennium. We have no mention of uh, tribulation. We, we have some suggestion of it in just, the next passage, we don't have a mention of the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb, for example, or some of those other things. Those aren't here. This is a, an abbreviated look. They call it prophetic foreshortening, where you're looking at an event. Like when we look at these mountains, is my great, wonderful, cliche example, you know that those mountains go on for miles and miles, right? But we see a flat sometimes on a particular day. It looks like a flat canvas of mountains. Anybody know what I'm talking about? But we know that there's depth and layers to it that we don't see from where we're at. And I think sometimes the coming of the Lord is pictured that way as the foreshortened version of here's what will happen and you need to have hope. Because Paul here has told us his purpose is not to set out some detailed chart. His purpose is to give hope to believers by telling us what we need to know. And that's really important that we not enter in here and go, well, forget your purpose, Paul. Paul. I'm going to do my own thing with this. We need to understand that he's trying to bring encouragement to us about what happens to people when they pass away. And so he talks about this. The coming of the Lord, he says, will not precede those who have fallen asleep in verse 15. Precede. Will not come before them. Now listen, if you have the KJV, I remember maybe three weeks ago or four weeks ago, I talked about how the King James Version has the word prevent in it. Anybody remember that? And this is that place. If you're reading the KJV, you probably heard th- that those who have died, they'll not prevent, will not prevent those who have already died in the Lord or are asleep in the Lord. Prevent has changed meaning over 400 years. And so if you like writing in the margin of your Bible, you might write there precede because that's what the intended meaning here is. In fact, uh, I don't know if you know this, but vent means to come. Vent means advent, to come. Right? And uh, think of some of the other convent, come together. Right? I don't want to spend a lot of time with this but I thought of several and I thought they're kind of clever but vent means to come uh, come together, ventilation to come air, bring air in and uh, pre means before, to come before is what prevent meant. So the standard meaning has changed and uh, do you know that In Webster's Dictionary of, I think, 1828, that prevent in the way that we use it is the sixth meaning. So in other words, they were still using it that way in in the 1800s in terms of precede, but somewhere between here and there it's changed. Words change over time. Do you know that? So this means precede, and I've labored that long enough, but I wanted to make the point that we who are alive when Jesus comes will not precede those who have died beforehand. They'll be with the Lord already. Okay? Important to know and that's good for our comfort as well. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. The Lord himself, this is a, a called a reflexive pronoun when it says the person and then it says himself, herself, themselves. It's in it's in order to intensify for us to know it's not somebody else that's coming, it's the Lord himself. Do you understand what that's saying? Look, it's Jesus who's coming, and we need to understand that it's him, the one we love, who will appear, and he will come and fulfill that promise. The Lord himself will come down from heaven, not someone else. And in the Old Testament, um, trumpets, shofars, ram's horns, they were used especially to gather the assembly of God or to give orders for battle. In this context, both may be in view, depending on how you view this, but at least what this is telling us that when the Lord comes, he's going to make himself known to his own. Do you understand that? That he will make himself known to his own. And yet, we have the responsibility to watch for him. Look at verse 17. It says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then it says, and so we will ever be with the Lord. So we'll be with the Lord forever. So you can see, it's not telling us everything. It's telling us that when the Lord returns, guess what? We get to be with him from then on. Isn't that wonderful? Come on, amen. I know I've been preaching long. If you say amen, I preach faster because I get excited. All right? So we will be with him from that point on. We who were alive at the time will be caught up in the clouds and will meet the Lord in the air. And this uh, word for meet here and the word for the Lord's coming, which you may have heard before is parousia. Parousia, the coming of the Lord. These were technical terms that describe the arrival of a dignitary, even an emperor. And so when you hear that and you hear the shofar, the trumpet blast, you go out and you meet the great one who has come so this is a calling forth of God's people. The dead in Christ will rise first. I understand that to be the resurrection of the body, okay? That they will rise. It's, it seems to me they're already with the Lord, but now they're embodied in a glorified body, and we too are, are embodied in a glorified body at that point, and we will ever be with the Lord. And so this passage provides present comfort through future hope. God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise 1st We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds. And we will be with the Lord forever. So notice, these are. there's two premises. First, the belief in the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the first premise. The second premise is, this is the promises of Christ's return. And then there's some therefores. These are the conclusions that come from those. Therefore, hope. Because Christ has died and rose again. Therefore, hope. Mourn differently because Christ died and rose again, and we have his promise. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. At the core of our hope is Christ, and this this has to be pointed out, and we need to grab a hold of this. Christ is the one who's been resurrected. Christ is coming again to gather his people. Christ will raise the dead again with bodies, and Christ will be victorious over Satan and all human rebellion in the end, though that's not in this passage. Come on, it's Christ. And so we're trusting and we're looking for him. And if some of the details that we want to find out are not there, folks, I grew up with a constant speculation. This wasn't just from my parents. It's from the TV programs. Everything was viewed in light of some revelation event. And I have to tell you, after a while, as a kid, you get a little bit, Dis, uh, disillusioned with all of that because that turned out not to be the thing that it was said to be. And so I've gotten really weary about that kind of speculation. I want to look to him, and I don't have to know all the details. Some people I know would rather would rather spend all of their time trying to figure out how revelation works together than they would understanding how to live the ordinary Christian life, how to love Jesus better, how to live with character. They want to know, They want, they're fascinated with this speculation but they don't care about the practical things of Christian living and I think that's really a dangerous way to live I think with things we don't know we trust the Lord and we look to him that's more important than figuring out all the details we know some things, we know some things hard and fast and I determine that when I preach this message today I'm going to preach the things that we can know and what we can know is Jesus is coming back, we can know that Okay, we don't know the day or the hour but we know he's coming And we better be looking for it. So let's trust him with the things we don't know. Finally here, the character of hope. And I'll go quick on this. Verse 18, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, when it says comfort one another, that's verse 18, or encourage one another with these words. Comfort assumes a company of believers. This is the beauty of the body of Christ, I think, is that, God has made these relationships in the body of Christ in such a way that when one is up, uh, the other, when one is down, I should start there. When one is down, somebody else may be at a level where they're feeling really good in their faith. And so that the person who is walking on cloud nine, you know, and they're it, thriving in the Lord, they can be an encouragement to the other. Ecclesiastes talks about that. Two are better than one. If one falls down, the other one can be there to pick them up. And we have in life what C.S. Lewis calls in the screw tape letters, the law of undulation, okay? And this is a scientific thing of waves, that we have We have troughs and we have peaks. And I think, regardless of what I've heard fr- in some areas of triumphalism, I think we all go through it. Some days you feel really good. Some days I can tell you it feels like the Holy Spirit has just taken over this body and preached. And other days it feels like I'm dragging my carcass up here, and having to force out every word. Law of undulation? I mean, we're praying, studying the same way. In some weeks, it's one way, in some weeks, it's another. And folks, I think in our Christian life, we have times like that. And we may have times, even if, if we're grieving, where, man, we're doing really good, and then the next day, it hits us hard. How do you deal with that? We comfort one another. We strengthen each other call upon somebody who's doing well and strong, somebody who's been through it before. And probably what's going to happen is you're going to have a really good day and they may have a really bad day and you're going to be able to return the favor and bless them in some way. And this is one of the ways we are strong in God. It's because he's given us one another. And it's beautiful. So when we talk about the character of hope, this comfort assumes the company of believers reminding one another The promises of Christ. My mom needed somebody to come and say to her, Maxine, she's with Jesus. And this is more than trite little reminders that they're with Jesus. (laughs) Because said in the right moment, that can be life giving. Said in the wrong heart and the wrong way, it can only reinforce the pain. You, You understand what I mean? We need to be sensitive to the moment, what God is saying at any particular moment, but Christ is returning, and the Christian you know who's died will be with Jesus when he comes. I think there's five kind of things that characterize this kind of hope. The first is the character of true hope is confident in Christ's accomplishments, okay. This is the character of true hope. We are confident in what Christ has accomplished for us. Do you know, he didn't just die for himself, he died for you and me. And somehow the Holy Spirit applies the, the win to our account. Okay, He takes our losses and we take his win. There's a great exchange at the cross in which he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. He takes our death and he gives us his life. Okay, he takes our banishment. Remember, the Father turns away, and he gives us acceptance, and we're brought into the family of God. By virtue of his sonship, we are enfranchised into the family of God. We are sons through Christ and daughters through Christ. Okay, We, we need to be confident in his accomplishments. Are you confident in his accomplishments today? That's the character of hope. Jesus has accomplished this on our behalf, not we ourselves. And it's not some wishful thinking, and it's not some um, useful fiction that we've created to get through life till we die and there's nothing to think about anymore. No, we have it based on good, solid reasons. Jesus died, and he rose again, and it's our hope. The second thing is that we need to be comforted in his promises. Okay, Be comforted in his promises. The character of hope is to be comforted by the promises of God. In the face of death, we mourn differently as Christians and folks I've seen it and you've probably seen it too we sometimes call it a celebration of life and we we do we celebrate the life but we celebrate the home going even as we grieve the loss and, and feel bad about not having that person around anymore and that hurts and it's a real loss I was thinking in our time here I tried to count as accurately as I could and i think somewhere around 12 to 15 people solid people not like occasional church attenders core people people who are in the middle of things they've gone on to be with the lord and we feel their loss okay and that's uh that's hard but we don't grieve like those without hope i think a third character of hope is that we we look with open eyes to christ's return This needs to characterize our hope is that we watch. We're watchful for his appearing. Not not in the sense of reading into every little thing, but that we have our eyes open to his coming. And if you're looking to him, and if your heart is towards him, when he comes, you're going to know it. Come on. And you'll be ready because it will affect how you live. To be ready for Christ's coming is not just a mental game. This also affects what we do right we live differently in light of his coming first peter talks about that second peter talk about that talk, talks about that that in light of his coming we should live a certain way in a way that pleases him okay living to please him and then fourth let's be sympathetic to encourage others that's the character of hope is bringing our hope to bear upon the situation of others okay believers i'm thinking of in particularly now that we share that hope with them and a fifth thing is that we'd be willing to share our hope with others outside the body of Christ. There are people that are living out there with no hope, and they're going into this holiday season dreading it. That's one of the reasons why I think bread of life has been so important is that we brought bread to people as we're getting ready to enter Thanksgiving, and they've got nothing to celebrate. Okay, And that's a small thing, but think about the big hope that we have to offer. A lot of people live, remember how some author said that most people live in quiet desperation? It means that they're desperate for hope, but they don't say anything about it. They just tread on and on and on and on. But in their heart, they're dying with hopelessness. Man, we've got hope. Come on, I can see it on your face. You smile. You come together. There's a noise that happens, the noise of hope when the body of Christ gathers together because we know that we not only have the pleasures and the blessings of this life but the life to come because of Jesus and I think it's really good to be able to share that with others. You know, not knowing some things can cause us to be hopeless but when we know the right things. It leads to hope and how to grieve correctly. Do you remember the scene at the grave of Jesus at, outside the tomb? The guys have rushed over there. The ladies go to prepare the body before the guys get there. and um, They get there and the stone's rolled away. And some of the ladies run off. There you see Mary. This is in John's Gospel in the garden. And she sees a figure there, right? <laughs> and... She doesn't know it's Jesus. I don't know if her eyes are filled with tears, if his glorified body looks a little different, if it's kept from her. She says, Lord, sir, gardener, if you know where they've taken my Lord, will you tell me where he is so we can get him? And she says, Mary, just calls her name. And you can see that she may not have been able to see Jesus through grief, but when Jesus calls her name, she recognizes him and everything changes. Somehow that knowledge changed everything for her, just as it did for us. The two on the road to Emmaus, they're walking with Jesus. He's unpacking the Old Testament for them. They they come to a place to stop, and they say, well, hey, why don't you stay with us for tonight?" They sit down around a fire. He begins to break bread. Their eyes are open, and they see that it's Jesus, and it changes everything for them, and Jesus going into the room. You see, hope has something to say to grief. Hope will have the final word to death and its life. Can anybody tell anybody else how to mourn? I don't know. Yes and no, I think, but it seems that Jesus can. Jesus was on his way to do a miracle, and sometimes you'll see this, is that he gets interrupted on his way to something else, and something big happens then. He's on his way to a miracle. Somebody touches the hem of his garment, and she's cured. And... Uh, News comes to Jairus that his daughter has died in Luke chapter 8, verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came to the house of Jairus and the synagogue, lead, the synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When they arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Okay, you probably should understand this as these are these are family members that they're making a big show of it or they could be hired mourners even to make a show of this so that the proper amount of grief was expressed. And Jesus says, "Stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep." He knows something that they don't know they laughed at him how quickly they turned from wailing to laughter they laughed at him knowing that he was that she was dead but he took her by the hand the little girl my child get up and her spirit returned at once she stood up and then jesus told them to give her something to eat that's what you do when you get raised from the dead you, you eat something right away her parents were astonished But he ordered them not to tell anybody what had happened. The the resurrection of Christ and the promises of Christ bring hope, and that's our message for today. I don't really know how how to call for response. I think maybe we should stand and let's take a moment and let's thank the Lord for the hope that He's given in Jesus. Let's stand today. Thanks for your attention. There's hope in Christ. I'd like to say, if you've never put your confidence in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've never known Him as the hope of life, then today you can. I would encourage you to cry out to Him and say, Lord, this is so bleak without You. I see a lot of people are living with these little purposes and meanings that they've established for themselves and they've never met. Or known the true meaning of life, and to know God and fully and enjoy Him forever. And so lots live in this quiet desperation of knowing that at the end of the day it won't matter. See, in ancient Greece, one of the they came many people came to the conclusion the only way to have immortality is to make a big name for yourself that la- that lives after you. But the gospel teaches us that our life matters and that we can live for things that are of eternal significance if we'll give our lives to Christ and offer ourselves completely to Him. We can live in ways that matter beyond this life and that there is hope. The death does not end all things. So I would encourage you today if you've not trusted in Christ with all of your heart, Throw your full weight on him. He died and he rose again. He is the leader. He's the first fruits, the Bible calls him, of those who will be raised from the dead. His body and our bodies will be like each other. And that day will come. And so it matters how we live life and it matters how we deal with death because of what Jesus has done. Would you look to him today? Maybe you're going through a struggle right now. You need some encouragement or somebody to pray for it. It may not have anything to do with this particular message other than you'd like some prayer. These altars are open. Maybe you are going through a difficult time with uh, grieving. These altars are open. Uh, but let's take a moment here. Let's respond to the Lord before we go. And let's cling to the hope that he's offered us in Christ. Would you do that with me? Amen.